If your first acquaintance with the field of UK-Greece relations was this week's headlines, you might assume that both countries were on the verge of tearfully waving off their navies with a view to settling matters at some Mediterranean midpoint. In a reignition of the perennial row over the sculptures known, depending on who you ask, as the Elgin or Parthenon marbles, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak snubbed Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who in turn snubbed UK Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden. There was, in both directions, considerable harumphing. But the truth is that, give or take the issue of who properly owns a few items of venerable rubble presently stashed in the British Museum, the UK and Greece get on fine. Both are members of NATO, both were members of the EU until reasonably recently. The two countries have a trade relationship worth north of 10 billion quid annually. Millions of British people holiday in Greece every year and the father of the UK's monarch was born there. But this week's spectacular spat reminded that, with nations as with individual people, disputes between friends can be at least as difficult to manage as disputes between enemies. The Elgin or Parthenon marbles are not the only such bone of contention. Why do allies fall out? How does the relationship get fixed when they do? And could this week's brouhaha have been avoided? This is The Foreign Desk. I think the basic rule in these things is be honest and have the row. If you disagree with one of your allies, one of your friends, say so. If you disagreed with the Uruguayans or the Chileans or whoever it was, you'd go into those and say, look, guys, we really don't like this. Thump the table, throw your red bananas around as much as you like. <laughs> and finally, you know, once you've all vented your emotions, you carry on. There was also a clear way of marking that, oh, if there are disputes, they can be solved by conflict, but they can also be solved by negotiations and based on international law, respect of each other. So in the midst of that crisis, it was, I think, also important for us to show that international law we hold dear and we applied. And even between two friendly countries, we have disputes, but we solve them peacefully. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll speak to a former British diplomat about the practicalities of managing ructions among friends, and we'll meet the former foreign minister who brought one such conflict to a close. But first, for a closer look at this week's loss of marbles over the loss of marbles, I'm joined now by George Parker, political editor at the Financial Times. George has been following developments. George, first of all, how did Rishi Sunak not see this coming? Surely he understood that any Greek prime minister visiting the United Kingdom is going to tee off about the marbles. That's certainly what you would think. And it's certainly true that he's stumbled into a big diplomatic row, which has rebounded very badly on the British prime minister. I think many people think he's acted in a petulant way, made Britain look faintly ridiculous in snubbing the Greek prime minister in this way. The official explanation from number 10 is that it was the Greek prime minister who requested this meeting. He was over in London for a few days. He wanted to see Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak said to him basically, OK, fine, I'll meet you to discuss immigration and the war in Gaza, Israel. But on the proviso, you don't come over here. We have a big song and dance about the so-called Elgin marbles. So when Mr. Takis went on the BBC on Sunday and started talking about the Elgin marbles, that really riled up Rishi Sunak. And in the end, he decided to pull the meeting. But 
you know, as I said, it's gone down pretty badly everywhere, just about. What's your read on why Sunak pulled the meeting? Is he just a bit crotchety and was he just having a bit of a huff? Or does he perceive some sort of strategic domestic electoral advantage or overseas foreign policy objective in in making a thing of this? Yeah, it's a very good question. But everyone's asking how on earth did he do this? Why did he do it? I think there are three explanations first of which is the official explanation I just gave you. And I think Rishi Sunak does have a bit of a tendency sometimes to be a bit tetchy. And I think he probably did see it as a point of principle that he asked Mitsotakis not to raise this, and he did. So he felt there was a breach of his word. The second explanation is that he was peeved that Mitsotakis met Sir Keir Starmer, the opposition Labour Party leader, the day before the scheduled meeting in Downing Street. That probably wounded him up a bit. And then the third thing is, yes, domestic politics he clearly saw an opportunity to present himself, this is Rishi Sunak, as a defender of British, in inverted commas, culture, in the sense that he was trying to stop the Parthenon sculptures being exported back to Athens, and presenting Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, as someone who would be prepared to see a return, at least of part of the sculptures, to Athens. So I think those were the three explanations. I think probably the first one, speaking to people in number 10, genuinely seems to be the principal factor here, that he was just cheesed off that the Greek Prime Minister had broken his word. This seems like a question that can be asked about almost any so-called culture war issue, but this one in particular, is there any indication that a great many actual British people really care much about this one way or the other? (laughs) No, is the answer to that. And I think this is the thing that surprised Keir Starmer's office, that why would you be deciding to have such a big row about something that most people in Britain don't care about or even know about? And speaking to some colleagues around here, they were saying that until recently they thought the Elgin marbles were actually marbles that you might play with in the playground rather than a two and a half thousand year old frieze from the Parthenon. I mean, it's, the Elgin marbles are not part of British national life in the way, same way that they are in Greece obviously. So it was a strange bit of culture war to be fighting. And, you know, in the end, the abiding memory of this whole episode is of the British Prime Minister behaving in a slightly erratic fashion. Thinking about it more broadly, though, why has the United Kingdom been so all-fired keen to hold on to the Elgin slash Parthenon marbles? Because you can very easily see that if returning them to Greece was handled right, you would get all the advantages of looking reasonable and conciliatory and statesmanlike, and surely those would vastly, vastly outweigh any perception that you had capitulated to Johnny foreigner. Well, you'd think so. And there is a compromise proposal on the table, put on the table by the former Tory Chancellor George Osborne, who's now, of course, the chair of the British Museum. He suggested this idea of a loan agreement where the marbles would be sent back to the Parthenon in pieces, in sections of it would be sent back on loan in exchange for some Greek treasures coming the other way. I think that sounds like a pretty reasonable solution. It may not be acceptable to the Greeks, of course, and it's something that Keir Starmer would be prepared to accept. And I think that would look good on all sides. However, there are people in Downing Street who regard this as the start of a slippery slope and that if you were to give back part of the marbles to Athens, you have a whole load of other countries knocking on our door asking for some of their treasures to be returned. And let's face it, the Brits had a pretty good record of going around the world seizing artefacts to take into British protection, I think is probably how they would have put it in those days. 
To frame this spat in the context of today's programme, which is taking a wider look at how one manages disputes that arise among countries which are broadly allies, and obviously in pretty much every field except this one, the United Kingdom and Greece get on absolutely fine. Both members of NATO, citizens of both countries regularly holiday in each other, etc. There's not really any recent history of great animosity. So does this spat this week put any kind of lasting dent in UK-Greece relations? I don't know. I mean, usually countries get over these kinds of spats. I mean, it's, it's obviously damaging, I think, in the short term. I would imagine that Mr Mitsotakis thinks that the person he was he actually did meet in London this week, Keir Starmer, will probably be the Prime Minister, according to the opinion polls, at least in a year's time. So things might be put back on a more stable footing. But at the moment, there is a bit of a sense that Rishi Sunak is trying anything to try to change the political narrative here. He's trailing by 20 points in the opinion polls behind Labour. And you got the sense this week he was prepared to, as you put it, bash Johnny Foreigner. He had a few digs at Brussels as well, going back to the old brexit playbook. But it's confusing to people because at the same time, he's just appointed David Cameron, the former Prime Minister, as his Foreign Secretary. We were told this was going to mark the start of a more serious, heavyweight British foreign policy, stable Britain on the world stage. And the first thing that Rishi Sunak does is this slightly strange thing of snubbing a NATO ally in a very public way. Just finally, then, you suggest, and you may well be right, that Rishi Sunak, looking at those maddeningly unbudging polls, is now firmly in blaze of glory mode as he anticipates the reasonably imminent election. But does this spat this week damage him beyond the UK-Greece realm? Do other countries around the world start to think that this man is, well, just seems a bit petty and ridiculous? I think that's the danger for Rishi Sunak. He wants to be taken seriously. He thinks there are too many people, and he'd probably count the FT among these people, who talk about Britain in a declinist sort of way. And he wants Britain to be taken seriously on the world stage. He recently hosted an AI summit here. And, you know, the appointment of Cameron was seen to be a part of that sort of re-establishing Britain as a big player on the world stage. But you can't have it both ways. You can't play petty domestic politics and be seen as a world statesman. So I think there is a danger for Rishi Sunak that people looking at this from abroad will think this is someone who's flailing around a bit and who is, I don't know, maybe in survival mode, maybe in desperation mode, but certainly someone who's facing a pretty bleak political future, according to the opinion polls. George Parker, thank you. That was the Financial Times political editor, George Parker. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. And joining me in the studio now to consider some of the practicalities of managing disagreements among allies is John Everard, a former British diplomat who served as the UK's ambassador to North Korea, Uruguay and Belarus. John, I'll start by asking you a variation of the first question I asked George Parker at the top of the show. If I install you hypothetically at the Greek desk at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, you would understand that the Greek Prime Minister is coming to the United Kingdom. There is absolutely no way in a million years he's not going to have a bit of a swing about the Elgin slash Parthenon marbles. What do you advise the Prime Minister as to how they should handle that? 
basic diplomatic practice, fight fire with fire. If you think he's going to sound off to a newspaper, however disreputable, then you do the same. Not the Prime Minister himself, that would be a bit too grand. Oliver Dowden or somebody similar stature on standby, ready to invite a suitably senior journalist in to give the British view of the marbles before Greek Prime Minister sits down with Rishi Sunak. And the two then will meet with a big grin, one of those kind of crush handshakes that you <laughs> so often see in diplomacy where they realise they've each scored points off each other and how can we put this behind us and move on but what you don't do is simply cancel the meeting that just looks petulant If you reflect on your long and eventful diplomatic career quite a lot of it was served in places with which the United Kingdom by and large doesn't get on terrifically well Belarus North Korea to varying extents China but at any point were you a party to or observer of of a falling out among nominal allies? Well, yes. I've spent quite a lot of my career dealing with Latin America, full of countries with good relations with the United Kingdom. I mean, we're, we're friends with these guys. But there was the bananas, of course. The bananas, of course. The bananas, of course. Way back in 1987, I think it was, Ecuador invented the red banana. Now, this is important because imports of bananas into the United Kingdom are governed by a wonderful document called the Long-Term Banana Arrangement. You, you, <laughs> th this isn't actually a still from Woody Allen film. This really does exist. The idea was to give Commonwealth producers priority to the market because a lot of the small islands in the Caribbean, if they can't export bananas to the UK, their economy would simply collapse. Anyway, Ecuador had limited quotas but invented the red banana and said this banana is not a banana. This is a red banana. Red bananas are therefore outside the quotas set out by the long-term banana agreement. Had whoever drafted the long-term banana agreement not thought to specify the colour? This was the bad point. No, mm. they hadn't. It had been assumed that all bananas that evermore were going to be yellow. So the Ecuadorians wrong-footed the UK completely. Huge theological arguments. You think that arguing over angels on a pinhead is difficult? You try banana colours. Anyway, after much soul-searching, much consultation of leather-bound legal tomes and pouring through the text of the agreement... It was decided that banananess did not depend on colour. The intrinsic nature of a banana was not actually confined to yellow bananas. The red bananas were bananas. And we put this to the Ecuadorians, who sulked royally and said that we, the Brits, would have been quite unfair. This wasn't cricket. And they'd gone to all this trouble to devise this wonderful new fruit, and we were simply not accepting it. But in the end, they did. And for a while, you could actually get Ecuadorian red bananas in British supermarkets, just sold as regular bananas till the Ecuadorians realised that actually nobody wanted to buy these things and they simply disappear from the shelves. The composition and provenance of comestibles is quite a common source of disputes among nominally friendly nations. I believe that France and Germany, which have got on, well, reasonably well since 1945 at least, nearly came to blows over chocolate rabbits. Or were they chocolatiers? This is the point. Yes, you're <laughs> right. Some 20, 25 years ago, there was an almighty spat between the two countries where the Germans worked into EU legislation the exact specifications of the chocolate to go into the chocolate hairs that are so widely loved and nibbled at in Germany in the run-up to Easter. Goody, goody, said the French, we see a market here. And they flooded the German market with things that looked very much like chocolate hairs but were made with all the wrong kind of chocolates. 
cheaper ingredients produced by France. The Germans, of course, were furious and took the French to task over this. No, no, said the French. These are not chocolate hares. These are chocolate rabbits. And they are therefore not subject to the regulations, much tooth-sucking in Berlin, in Bonn, and a certain amount of jubilation in Paris. And finally, the Germans managed to get the regulations changed to say that any chocolate creature that looked or resembled a hare was subject to these regulations. And just in case the French pulled a second fast one, they put in a footnote that these regulations also applied to chocolate Father Christmases. <laughs> we have mostly in this episode, and will later in this episode, be talking about disputes over subjects which are very much not matters of life and death. But allies do fall out over the big important stuff as well and have to figure out how to stay allies. Now, famously, the United States States and the United Kingdom are forever at pains to talk about the special relationship, though I suspect it is rather more special to the UK than the US. But nonetheless, it is a fairly solid relationship and has been since a the last unpleasantness, I think, in about 1812. By and large, they get on fine. But the United States went to war in Vietnam, obviously, in the 1960s. The United Kingdom did not. Why was that not a massive schism between the two, or at least a lasting schism between the two countries? This is an example of, of really a effective diplomacy. The United Kingdom couldn't send troops to Vietnam. This was the Wilson government, Labour government, with a rowdy and highly articulate left wing who would have simply brought the government down mm. if the United Kingdom had got involved in a conflict which many of them believed, rightly or wrongly, was unjust, was America bullying Vietnam, and that Western powers had no right to interfere in. So they couldn't send troops. Repeated requests from the Americans. Lyndon B. Johnson at one point was close to offering a billion dollars in aid. This, of course, was at a time when the United Kingdom economy was still rather weak. If the UK would simply send a token brigade, they just wanted something mm. under a union flag to show this wasn't entirely US operation. Harold Wilson worked the phones. Lyndon B. Johnson was notoriously a difficult man to get on with, a man <laughs> of strong views and use of language which I wouldn't want to use on a station like Monocle. But Wilson rang him, soothed him, offered everything short of actual boots on the ground. They allowed supplies to go through through Hong Kong. They shared intelligence. They gave the United States all the moral support they could. And at the same time, Harold Wilson said, you, of course, you, you're fighting Vietnam. We've got the Malaysian insurgency to deal with. We too are fighting communism on our patch. We do Malaysia, you do Vietnam. And Johnson harumphed. And this special relationship did come under a certain amount of strain. And there were those around him who thought that the Brits were playing fast and loose with, with the United States, particularly at a time when the US was, was keeping Sterling afloat. But in the end, Wilson's line won through. The relationship held. Lyndon B. Johnson probably dropped several more choice descriptions of the British Prime Minister in private, but the Sterling held up and the two countries have remained friends since. It was well done. Well, just finally then, are there general principles that you think apply for keeping a friendly relationship friendly? Because history, of course, is replete. Indeed, pretty much consists of once allied nations contriving to fall out with each other to a dramatic and dreadful effect. I think the basic rule in these things is be honest and have the row. If you disagree with one of your allies, one of your friends, say so. You mentioned the United States as an example of a relationship a minute ago. There's a board on the wall of the deputy head of mission in Washington which lists the rows we have going with the United States at any <laughs> given time. If they can keep it under a dozen major rows, then they reckon they're doing well. Peace has broken out, but it's usually well above that. And you just have to fight these things through. I mean, with the Americans of all people, you can sit and argue and you know, finally come 
come to some kind of conclusion. The same goes for most of the European allies, and certainly the patch that I'm most familiar with, with the Latin Americans. If you disagreed with the Uruguayans or the Chileans or whoever it was, you'd go into a and say, look, guys, we really don't like this. Thump the table, throw your red bananas around as much as you like, <laughs> and finally, you know, once you've all vented your emotions, you carry on. That's how it works. John Everard, thank you very much, as always, for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. The Hans Island dispute, it is fair to say, commanded few anguished headlines while it simmered and no Nobel Prizes were distributed upon its resolution. For those of you who missed it, which is to say almost the entire population of Earth, a recap. Hans Island is an uninhabited, unprepossessing lump of rock wedged between the Danish Autonomous Territory of Greenland and the Canadian island of Ellesmere. Both Denmark and Canada claimed Hans Island, though the assertion of those claims never went much further than occasional forays by passing ships of their respective navies. Sailors of the Royal Danish Navy would run up their flag and leave a bottle of schnapps. Their counterparts from the Royal Canadian Navy would hoist the maple leaf and leave a bottle of whisky. Happily, this conflict, which had become known as the Whiskey War, was settled last year. I'm joined now from New York by one of the negotiators who brought the world back from the brink, Jeppe Kofod, who served as Denmark's Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2019 to 2022. Um, Jeppe, first of all, when did you first personally become aware of what I'm going to go ahead and call the Hans Island question? Oh, I have been aware for a long time before I was in government, so back in 2000s. I mean, I was aware of the issue because, of course, there was the so-called whiskey war where we were placing our Danish bottle of liquor in the island when our troops were there and then the Canadian placed there. So, yeah, I was aware of it. It was not top of mind or top of list issue, but it was there for many years. Around the world, as I'm sure you know, any territorial dispute, any boundary issue can escalate into quite an emotive and important thing. Did Hans Island ever get that way in Denmark? Was this ever something that the Danish public or the Danish media ever really cared about all that much? Of course, it was covered from the outset because we had this minister for Greenlandic affairs, ones who went there, and but it was not a big issue because, of course, you are in the Arctic region where there are many discussions over borders and territory already, you know, at sea. So it's an area where <laughs> where these ha- these questions haven't been settled for many of the Arctic nations, including Kingdom of Denmark and Canada and the three other Arctic coastal states. So in that sense, it was not a controversial issue, but it was there. And of course, because Canada is an ally, a strong partner to Denmark, a NATO country, there was also the issue on, you know, that two who were in the same military alliance also were <laughs> having a dispute over over land. I mean, so that was also something that was a little bit uh, colorful. 
as you've uh, alluded to, a tradition had developed whereby Danish sailors would run up the Danish flag and leave a bottle of schnapps, and then Canadian sailors would come and run up the maple leaf and leave a bottle of Canadian whiskey, which I'm sure was tremendous fun for everybody involved. So given that this seems basically fairly harmless and actually like quite a good morale-boosting team bonding exercise for both navies, what made you decide that this needs to be resolved. We do need a solution to the Hans Island question once and for all. I think several reasons. First of all, as the geopolitical tensions has increased in the Arctic region, with the disputes over the North Pole and and the whole discussion on the continental shelf and how law of the seas can be applied in this region, all of these issues is there and states we have key fundamental interest when it comes to territory. And therefore, these claims that we also, the Kingdom of Denmark have over not settled territories yet, was very much on the radar. And I know the work there is is a long horizon work because it's based on, you know, scientific cooperation between the Arctic states, you know, and it's based on a UN framework on to do it. So, but it was important. So therefore, settling a dispute like the Hans Islands, but actually the whole sea border between the Kingdom of Denmark and Canada was was a priority to show that you can apply international law and you can also settle disputes in a in a civilian manner based on on international law. I mean, Hans Island, of course, as you recall from the early eighties, I mean, Canadians they claimed this was Canadian territory, and and Danes likewise. So it was not in that sense, an uncontroversial issue. But showing that we can do it was was important. And the the other part I want to mention is you also had a government in Canada at the time last year where we actually had an opportunity to do this. Previous attempts has failed because of political issues. So the political situation were also such as conducive for making the deal. So once you decided to apply yourself to resolving the issue, how difficult was it to find somebody on the Canadian side of this dispute to, well, almost literally meet you halfway? Was it actually difficult to get it sorted out once you decided to sort it out? No, because frankly speaking, our very skilled uh, civil servants has done an excellent job on both sides to find the right, so to speak, compromise. And one of the things I clearly remember is also that we should avoid publicly mentioning the exact percentage of land that the Kingdom of Denmark got versus Canada, because you know there was this natural border at the island that was used as, as a dividing line. And uh, there, of course, Denmark got a little bit more than Canada. But that last part, we, we were all agreeing we should kind of downtone that, don't show it too much, because that could be a little bit sensitive. So there was a good, constructive, friendly atmosphere. And I think that paved the way for this deal. And no suspicions that we will take advantage or use it politically in our own countries and create political problems for the other government in the other country. I think that was the feeling, at least, I had. I did want to ask you a bit about the signing ceremony that you undertook with your then-Canadian counterpart, Melanie Jolie. Why did you not hold that on, Hans Island? Was it just too difficult to get everybody there? It was too difficult to get people there. 
it is very costly to make an operation where you go there. And frankly speaking, we were discussing whether we should go to Hans Island at a certain point together and stuff. But I think we also have to justify all of the resources that should be spent on that type of trip. And secondly, uh, we also wanted not only the two governments, of course, but also the indigenous people, the local people, in particular for Denmark, it was important to have the premier of Greenland and Greenland, which has far-reaching competences in our system, to be, in a way, equally present at this type of ceremony because it's their land that where this dispute has been settled about. You know, it's their part of the kingdom. See, we picked on Hans Island for this episode about diplomatic disputes between friendly nations because it would work almost perfectly even as a theoretical example of two friendly countries still nevertheless in dispute over a very remote, very small and very uninhabited lump of rock. For all those reasons, I can see that this might have been an easier one to sort out than many of the diplomatic disputes that beset our world. But were there any sticking points at all? Was there any back and forth about the terms of the agreement, anything that Canada and Denmark at some point couldn't quite get together on? Oh, over the years, there has been several issues. And I can... I can allude to that because I, I know that my people on our side, the legal experts, the civil servants, they have been dealing with this for a number of years. So I think it, it was not a given thing. I think one thing was also helped, as you mentioned, it was also the, you know, last year with the breakout of the Russian aggressions against Ukraine. So there was also a clear, you know, way of marking that, oh, if there are disputes, they can be solved by conflict, but they can also be solved by negotiations and based on international law, respect of each other, and also the the territory of the other states. So, so in the midst of that crisis, it was, I think, also important for us to show that international law we hold dear and be applied. And even between two friendly countries, we, we have disputes, but we solve them peacefully. I just have one final question about that signing sure. ceremony. In keeping with the tradition of the Whiskey War, you and Melanie Jolie did exchange bottles at the ceremony. What did you do with yours? Did you end up drinking it? No, no, I, I kept it. And I have it at home, actually, as a, a reminder of how a, a dispute can end in a very friendly way. When I look at the bottle, it reminds me about this fascinating and for me, very joyful experience that we had this cooperation between Canada and Denmark. And I think we we also are brought closer together, not only the Kingdom of Denmark and Canada, our two governments, but also Greenland. I think that was also important that the signature on our side was signed by both me as foreign minister, but also the premier of Greenland as the head of the Greenlandic government, because it was their territory at the end of the day we had an agreement on. And on our side, we spent a lot of time doing everything in, you know, in cooperation with the Greenlandic government. So people were consenting that it was the right deal to do. Jeppe Kofod, former foreign minister of Denmark, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. 
To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>